Welcome listeners to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler. We're going to talk about helping women solve porn use. We've done very few episodes on that topic. We've talked about pornography, but we haven't talked about helping women solve porn use. We had Maddie Davis on episode 622, a BYU female BYU student who shared her own porn use and her journey to solve that was really brave. And listens for that episode are very high. And now we have Julie Fraumani McBride on the podcast. Welcome, Julie. Hi. Um, Julie is um, somebody that's in the space from a researcher, research perspective of helping women solve porn use. So it's the first um, researcher I've had on the podcast that's really studied this space and is now developing content to help women solve you porn use. Um, Julie, just by background, um, lives near Temecula, if I said that right. I always have a hard time saying Temecula. Um, she is a married mother of six young kids. Um, she's LDS, devout LDS, converted to the church at 19, shared with me a little bit about her conversion story. It's a beautiful story. Um, she went on to get a PhD in education and disability studies. And um, she's a researcher and and edu- and program designer for the Steadfast Institute. And some of the content she's providing is women solving porn use. So this isn't coming like I would be as a former YSA bishop from a pastoral perspective or just sort of what I've gathered. Um, Julie's coming from a heavy research side. Um, She's just listening to her. She's um, very analytical, very focused, and um, has a PhD and just has really thoughtful insights to helping women solve porn use and will probably be broader than that. Is that okay for an introduction, Julie? That should work. Tell us how to pronounce your name. You've got Framini. Tell us that's your maiden name. You're married now, and your husband's name's McBride. Tell us a little bit about your name. My name, um, my name is Italian, Framini. Um, my goddad, who helped raise me, was the director of epidemiology and oncology at the National Institutes of Health. And he actually discovered a unique cancer and um, had a research mind and really mentored me throughout my life. And so I thought, okay, let's keep that name and honor my legacy. And uh, let's also not get lost in the sea of McBrides. <laughs> so my <laughs> husband loves it. He forgets that I, I'm, I'm actually a McBride, but he he loves it. He, he loves I that that's I hyphenated great. the name. Julie's work, listeners, is broader than the LDS community. This podcast is probably mostly LDS, but there may be people listening that aren't LDS, and this podcast may be helpful to you. It would mirror Julie's work that's broader than the LDS faith community. This is an issue that affects, obviously, um, broader than Latter-day Saints. But maybe you could just introduce, wherever you want to go with this, you could talk a little bit about how you got in this space. You could talk about your academic and clinical work. as you. What I'm trying to do is, listeners, as I listened to Julie for the last 20 minutes, I just got increasingly impressed with her and the work she's done in this space and her understanding from the research she's done to really bring what this podcast forward and her work forward that I think will find helpful to you. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, so I think the best place to start with this is, yes, uh, the really unique thing about the research I do is a lot of my research has focused on women. Um, but a lot of my research is also focusing on different disabilities, uh, different intellectual and mental health impairments, such as autism, bipolar, depression, cyclothymia, ADHD, um, and other conditions, um, and, and the nuances of how that interplays with sexual compulsivity. And so, especially in certain religious spheres, uh, when we talk about problems with pornography use, we always hear the word addiction, porn addiction. And even in a lot of different church settings, uh, the 12 steps program is being used, which is an addiction recovery model. Um, and so what I do is I really look at what are the most effective treatments for problematic porn use. Um, and that story really begins with, uh, understanding 
that pornography use, when it becomes problematic, it actually doesn't classify as an addiction. And to understand that isn't to undermine the feelings of intensity that one feels with being pulled to using porn or the consequences of using porn. The importance of designating the difference between addiction and otherwise is really understanding the treatment model and how we internalize the vocabulary and the treatment model significantly changes outcomes and recovery for individuals. Um, And so I want to always be careful so that people don't think, oh, is she saying that I'm not addicted, that it's not that hard for me? And I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying it's as hard as you feel it is. It's as difficult to stop as you feel it is. It's as impossible as you feel it is. It's impacting your life as you feel it is. Um, But we're we're actually using a different word for it because addiction is leading us to the wrong treatment models. Um, And so... The whole designation really comes from the fact that the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual in the United States does not recognize porn addiction um, or even sex addiction. The International uh, Classification Manual does recognize sexual compulsivity under which problematic porn use is called PPU or problematic pornography use, or sometimes referred to as SPPPU, which is self-perceived problematic pornography use. And the reason for this is because of these different comorbidities that I'm discussing with you now, like ADHD or bipolar OCD, we see comorbidities with sexual compulsions um, such as those. And in science, we've been really trying to figure out what's going on there. Like, why is there comorbidities? morbidity with this. Um, and a lot of the research isn't entirely clear, um, but we do know that problematic porn use doesn't fit the criteria for a clinical addiction. There's not the same withdrawal symptoms. Um, there might be like a minuscule rate of people that that have this like rare addiction, but the majority of people are not experiencing an addiction. Um, At Steadfast Institute, we've coined the word reliance, that they have experienced a reliance. Um, And so how that kind of happens, I'll go into as well. Um, But basically what happens is uh, depending on the type of condition you have, the age at first exposure to pornography, um, because of the chemicals that are being released um, as you're viewing pornography, the masturbation that is usually associated with it, that's releasing the oxytocin, which is very, uh, very uh, strong bonding chemical, as well as the dopamine release, um, you know, which is like, which is like a, almost like a medication. Um, it's a feel good feel, uh, hormone. Um, you develop a reliance, your body over time develops a reliance on that. And porn's a really easy and quick way to get that. Um, and depending on how soon you began using pornography, the severity of the reliance will differ. So in this last study that I did on women's pornography use, I was found that 69% of the women in my study were exposed to pornography in childhood. of those women went on to use pornography in adulthood. So that begs the question, what would have happened if they would have never been exposed in childhood? Would they have learned to navigate those serotonin levels differently, the dopamine levels differently, and so on? Um, And we think the answer to that is yes, especially with seeing that sexual compulsivity uh, is also associated with these comorbidities of ADHD, or bipolar or OCD. Um, And so we have the question of the chicken or the egg, right? Like what began first, like the depressive symptoms or the porn use? Um, And that's a really interesting question we're really sorting out, but I can speak to what we see. We do see that people that maybe were undiagnosed with a certain mental health condition when they were younger, developed a greater reliance. And that's anecdotally speaking, we're still working on the data science part of this, um, but we're seeing that those reliances become stronger and more persistent over time. We see that those with autism that begin using in childhood develop like a, a time algorithm that they set in place with pornography use. It's also uh, associated with some of the stimming behaviors, uh, the social isolation that people feel already with autism. So we see a lot of complexities with different mental or intellectual impairments and porn use. Um, And that's that's something that we see clinically and we're seeing in the research, um, but we're still sorting through. And so at the Steadfast Institute, um, we do offer different types of programs. We have more 
independent study cost-effective programs where individuals can do more of like a self-paced virtual program with all the lessons um, and have access to, to like Thursday coaching. But then we also have more custom tailored programs where we'll have some of them to come in that, that has maybe autism or bipolar and we'll help them um, collect all the data regarding their porn use patterns, the age at first onset, and really customize a program for them that will be effective. And what we use rather than the 12-step program and addiction model is we use something called acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT therapy. Um, and that's really the foundation of the program. And it has been shown in other studies when it's generically applied by uh, clinicians that are not even trained in sexual compulsivity, when they apply an ACT model, there's been an 80% efficacy rate. And so with our model, not only do we use this 80% efficacy rate ACT, but we also layer it with emotionally focused therapy, with John Gottman family-oriented and relationship therapy, uh, CBT when needed, ABA when needed, depending on the individual, if they have like autism. And so what we do is we layer the program according to individual intellectual and mental health impairments, as well as gender differences like male versus female. And then if someone identifies as LGBT, we also take into account the nuances of being LGBT and the different severities of use and identities associated with that. And so we take a very customized approach um, that's not only culturally inclusive, but intellectually inclusive and gender inclusive and orientation inclusive. Um, and we help individuals to to reach the goal of eliminating pornography from the equation um, so that they can have authentic uh, sexual um, sexual attraction templates, uh, authentic um, you know romantic uh, romantic relationships, the pursuit of such within their current dynamics. And then we also really help with deconstructing the shame that someone might be experiencing with their partner about the pornography use. Uh, the reality is, is that the majority of men have viewed pornography at some point. We're also seeing in the research that the, the majority of women are now experiencing pornography use at some point. Um, and we're also deciphering the difference between um, what is self-perceived um, problematic pornography use and what is actually problematic pornography is. And those two terms have been used interchangeably. Um, but we're learning now as we're doing the research that they might not actually be interchangeable uh, because self-perceived problematic pornography use um, is someone that perceives their porn use to be an issue. And a lot of times those individuals come from maybe religious backgrounds. Sometimes you have people that don't come from religious backgrounds. And so they also have this moral incongruence piece, which is a side note and very easy to manage. And you help them understand where it actually is an issue from like maybe the way they conceptualize it from the teachings that maybe were like shame and stigma associated. But usually there actually is an issue there because they have an underlying mental health condition. They've developed this reliance. It is affecting their relationships. And so in those cases, we focus heavily on helping them to like destigmatize and de-shame. And also for their, if they have a partner, with their partners because sometimes a partner learning uh, that their spouse is using pornography can become like a deal breaker. And so we also help to destigmatize in that way and help them understand that this is very treatable and this is very unfortunately common, um, but really help to dismantle the unneeded stress that has developed because of this catastrophe view of what pornography use means. Yes, it is a negative thing. It's not positive, but it doesn't have to end in divorce. It doesn't have to end in the dismantling of a healthy relationship. We can help with all of those pieces. So that's for a couple that might have SPPU, which is self-perceived. A lot of people are on this other side, which is PPU, which is problematic pornography use. A lot of people don't know they have this. They are entrenched in pornography. They don't have any background where they would have a moral incongruence or a religious teaching that would teach them that it's not working for them. And they're becoming really confused on what their sexual attraction really is. You know, they, they get really caught up in this. It's, it's a little bit more difficult to navigate the sexuality within their relationships. They don't really have a strong framework for how that works. And so unfortunately, we don't we don't cater to people that don't think they have a problem. We more cater to people that want help with a the problem they see. But we're also especially on the research side trying to bring awareness that there's a pretty large group of people on this side that don't understand it's a problem. Um, but it is and it's affecting them. 
Um, so that's that's really in summary what we do. Um, I know that was a mouthful, but it it's the best summary I have for what we do and the the nuances that we address. And they're very highly effective programs. We hope to bring awareness that uh, if not our program, we hope that people will stay away from addiction models. And we hope that the folks in addiction models that have dedicated their lives to helping people stop unwanted pornography is will consider the importance of continuing education um, and really changing their model uh, because the addiction model is really harmful. Um, it hurts individuals. It hurts families. It hurts marriages. Um, it's not accurate for treating them. And I, I, I do go a little bit extreme in comparing it to like modern day lobotomies. If someone doesn't know what a lobotomy is, lobotomies were used um, to treat people with different uh, mental health conditions uh, in the early 1900s. And it was developed by um, well-intended professionals and practice for a very long time. But uh, what we learned, it was causing a lot of damage to the way people with mental health conditions or intellectual differences were operating and it, it almost numbed them out mentally. And so we're seeing the same thing with sexuality, with these addiction programs. They're not effective. They're hurting people's sexuality. They're numbing them out sexually. They're not helping them enhance sexual intimacy. And our goal at Steadfast is to help people have really good sex lives. We want people to really enjoy their sex lives. That is such an important part of a relationship, um, well-being, individual and collective well-being. And so that is the primary driver for what we do. Um, it's not to demonize the porn use. It's not to cut off one's sexuality. It's to help people have agency-based, healthy sexuality. That was a terrific segment. Um, where were you, you know, eight years ago during my YSA assignment? You know, we just get set apart as YSA bishops and I've said this many times, the stick president left the office and there were a lot of YSAs waiting to talk to me. And the first brave young man walked in and talked about porn use. And it seemed like, Julie, as you would know, we talked about porn use in my entire YSA assignment. I didn't have a lot of tools. I mean, I love being set apart, and I, but I recognize that I lack tools um, and to help really good people. And what, I just wish that last segment had been played to me a week before my YSA assignment or before I started to raise kids and navigating as a father. Um, we have six kids. Our kids are on, you know, in their twenties and thirties and wished I had heard the things you just said. Um, Cause I want to do the right thing, but I recognize research is my friend and facts are my friend. And I love to follow the research to help me know how to help people. And, I want to get back to you. One thing is, I wish I'd said at the beginning of this podcast, I, I kind of position this as a podcast to help women solve porn, but this is a podcast to help anybody solve porn, uh, male or female. And it's also a podcast for parents, anybody that's looking for better tools to help others that you kind of have responsibility or an adult or you're some trusted friend or you're just in the equation to help others and you're looking for better tools. And so Julie brings those tools. Um, just some things, listeners, that I pulled out. <laughs> um, deconstructing shame. I love that line. I love where you call it reliance instead of addiction. What a, what a, um, the shame around reliance doesn't feel much shame. Addiction just feels shameful. And I love the ACT model. Prior um, guests have talked about that, and I wish I'd known about that. Um, and I love this custodian catastrophe of viewing porn and it may not be that if you find out your spouse is viewing porn it may not be the end of your marriage you may be able to navigate this and um and and because a lot of people want to keep their marriage together so i'll just let you keep talking um questions that you could go in these directions i don't know if you've got advice you've got six young kids um i wish i had better to what would if you want to give advice to parents to create a family culture where they'll talk to you about their porn use or you can sort of because this they're going to have to navigate this and if you can sort of de-shame it in the family conversation they may talk to you about it and you may be able to help them or advice to local leaders that are dealing with this in any church setting an lds church setting or other christian settings um, or you can just keep talking about the research it's all yours <laughs> yeah sure so 
Oh, let's see. Going back to de-shame some of the marriage pieces, I really want to just underscore this. Um, a lot of times, especially in the LDS church and other churches, we talk a lot about agency and choice. And so we always have this idea that everyone has a choice, right? And that's true. But how do you deconstruct the word choice, right? An agency. Does someone really have a choice when they're exposed in childhood? to pornography. Not really. They're not of age of consent. Yes, we say kids get baptized at eight because they have a choice, but it's different. They have a choice to make a decision to strive towards something, but they don't really have choice surrounding everything. They still live at home. They still have a lot to learn. You know, and it's the same way of being exposed to pornography. If you're exposed to pornography in childhood, you didn't have a choice. If you develop a reliance to pornography in childhood, you didn't have a choice. You know, and that lack of agency sticks with you into adulthood. You know, it's like saying you have a choice to not be depressed. It's like saying you have a choice to not be gay. It's like saying you have a choice to not have OCD. You don't have the choice to not have those things, right? You are that. That's part of who you are in this life or whatever, right? You have like how we operate with choices is by moving in the way that we're capable given the information we have, right? We do the best with the information we have. And so for couples that are struggling right now because they're worried that their marriage won't survive, I would say, I know it's really hard and you're actually experiencing the betrayal trauma of discovering a spouse is going through that. That is real and valid. You shouldn't have to feel bad about that. You shouldn't have to feel like you should put that away and shouldn't feel bad about it. You do need to work through that real and actual physical trauma that you are experiencing from that. However... If you can find space in your heart, realize that your spouse, most likely, if they're coming to you and saying, I want to stop, if they actually have some sincere desire to stop, it's a pretty good indicator that they don't have a choice, that they have developed a reliance and they need professional help, that they have an underlying condition that's not allowing them to stop. It's not as easy as just stopping. It requires a certain type of intervention, the type of intervention that we offer. So the business of what we really do is giving people back their sexual agency to helping them remove this barrier that they're not able to stop, no matter how hard they try, unless they have the right tools. It's like saying to someone that has like some decay in their tooth and needs a root canal that they just need to choose in their mind that it's not there, that it's going to stop. It's like, no, they have to go see a good dentist. They have to go see a good endodontist. They have to get the help from someone that knows how to help that, right? And so that's what we do. And so I would say have compassion on your partner. They probably sincerely want to stop and they're trying. Get them away from the addiction models. Get them into an ACT-based program. Better yet, bring them to our program. Um, And they will recover over time. Unfortunately, it's not going to happen overnight. It probably won't happen in a couple of weeks. If the problem developed over a series of years, it might take years. We see the best results somewhere between six months to 18 months, depending on the condition someone has, but it might take a little longer. And so we just have to be realistic about what it takes and not let it destroy marriages before you even give that person a fair shot at recovering from this. Um, so that's what I would say to the grownups. Um, that, was ter- that was terrific. Good, good, I'm glad. Um, for the parents with kids, uh, this one's tricky because I I have a lot of compassion for parents that are weary of what anyone has to say when they're talking about sexuality or porn. There's a lot of competing voices that want to tell you this or that about sexuality, and parents are understandably concerned about who to listen to, you know? And so sometimes when I say, oh, be open and be open at an early age, it's okay for parents to be concerned. I really value parents and their stewardship as parents, and that's such an important part of what they're doing. Um, If they can take a moment to really do the research, they can go through some of my like sex education tabs on my Instagram. I have a lot of free resources. Um, we hope in the future to provide parent education courses. We just have a lot on our plate the next couple of years, but we're hoping to develop, uh, 
parent education on sex education throughout the lifespan that will also be inclusive of different orientations and gender identities and so on and using a a science-grounded lens. Like we are not here to be a social movement. The only social movement we hope to be a part of is deconstructing the shame um, and and helping people with their marriages and families. Um, But we do not come from a social movement lens. We come from a lens of being rooted in science and wanting to provide you with the best medically accurate information to help you in your life. And so that's what we're working on at the Steadfast Institute. That's what I hope to put out when I put it out on my Instagram um, in the highlights. Um, And I do have to say stuff that maybe people won't be happy with at times. Maybe people will think I'm oversharing or undersharing or not sharing the right way, but I'm very committed to sharing the accurate information, um, whether it makes one side unhappy or another. Um, And so my, my big message to parents is you can start talking to your kids as soon as they can talk, you know, and, and that starts those conversations that you have. I mean, you're helping your kids in so many different ways concerning their sexuality. If you start appropriately identifying body parts and talking about them and what feels good for them as soon as age two or three, you're helping them to not to not be as susceptible to being sexually violated by a predator you know, these conversations, they're not exposing children to something that they might not otherwise be exposed to. You're educating your child. You get to do it in a safe environment coming from you. Um, and you go on in the progression of that, right? So you start with the body parts and you start talking about like, oh, if that feels good, or like you just start being real with your kids, stop being so afraid of what the conversations will do and be more afraid of what not having the conversations will do. When you don't have the conversations, you are no longer the expert for your child. They won't have a trust with you and they will look anywhere else but to you for information, you know? And don't don't say stuff just because you wanna say stuff, you know? Like sometimes parents feel the need to be an authority um, and so they'll give information that's not correct. If you don't know the answer, say, I don't know that answer. Give me a couple of days. Let me do some research and then let's have that conversation, right? It's okay to do that as a parent. Your kids will trust you for doing that rather than making up different fallacies just to placate them in that moment. You know, you don't have to know all things. All you have to do is show your kids that you're willing to have the discussions and willing to find the information that they're interested in. And you don't have to be so concerned about introducing everything if you don't feel ready. You know, I I have a lot of resources of different conversations you can have with kids. Um, and, And if you're comfortable with it, great. If you're not, then don't. You know, you know your kid and you know yourself. Um, I think the underlying message is, is become a trusted expert for your children. And if you're not an expert, become trusted enough that you can help them navigate the waters of whatever they're interested in. But just know that the lack of being that for them is more scary um, than being that for them. And it's also okay to be concerned about what they're being taught in school. It's okay to be concerned about what other people will teach them. Your goal is to to be that resource and to help them navigate those waters just like anything else in their life, the social situations. And I think parents need to trust themselves a little bit more uh, and trust their kids a little bit more. Um, and I, and like I said, I put the resources out and whatever you feel comfortable with is great. Um, but I also recognize that I spent all day, every day studying this topic. And for me, it's a lot easier to have the conversations with my kids. I don't panic when my five-year-old grabs one of my books that's talking about an orgasm because I can walk them through that. You know, not everyone has that same library in their house and I can't keep my kids from that either. And so these conversations come really naturally with my kids. And I promise there has been no loss of innocence. (laughs) I've got my little 10-year-old laughing up a storm because some kid didn't know how sex actually happened. And he's like, I didn't tell him because I didn't know if his parents would be okay with it, but I can't believe he didn't know. <laughs> no. So like, and then you turn around and he's doing the same thing every other 10 year old does. He's digging in mud and he's, he's being a kid. You know, they don't, these conversations don't ruin the kids. They don't, they just empower them and give them accurate info and they make them feel like they can trust you. Wow. That was a great segment. They don't ruin the kids. I love the principle you communicated. I wrote it down, be a trusted expert for your kids. And if you don't know the answer, you don't need to know the answer to be a trusted expert. You can take time and go figure out the answer. Um, What a beautiful principle, be the trusted expert for your kids and have these conversations. And I love also where you communicated, you know, own this, you know, don't outsource it to 
the other ways that your kids could get this education, own it. We have this great responsibility, at least in Latter-day Saint theology, as parents for our kids and the eternal nature of those relationships. And so if we really own that part of our doctrine, we would want to be the trusted experts. We don't want to outsource that, and we want to normalize this. And I love the way normalizing it for your kids. You're still, they didn't lose their innocence. Um, But I would guess if you came on the podcast in 10 years after you've got teenagers and 20 kids, some of the conversations you're going to have as they really age up in this space are possible because the conversations you're having now. It just didn't start at age whenever it might naturally start at puberty, I guess, is when I was always talking to my kids about all this stuff. And it was a little awkward for them. They teased me about it because it was the first time we talked about all this stuff. And you you may have some awkward conversations, who knows, but it's going to be easier because you've been having these conversations um, since they were little. Yeah, totally. It is, it is easier for me and I'm grateful in that respect. Um, but it's never too late to start. It's never Good. too late to go up to your kid. If they're a teenager now, be like, Hey son, daughter, you know, I made a mistake, you know, and I didn't have this as a kid. So have a little compassion on me. You know, I'm learning, but I'd like to ha- start having these conversations now, you know, just be upfront about it. You don't have to be coy with your own child. Like this is your child you get to call the shots and how you have these conversations and it's okay to humbly come to them and say, I didn't have this information. I'm still not sure what this or that means, but I, I want to be able to talk about it with you, you know? And so don't give up if you're at that place, even if you got, you know, your older kids, you know, yours are all grown. Um, but it's never too late. It's never too late to open that door and give your adult kids, your teenage kids permission to have open dialogue about sexuality. Uh, cause that's going to get passed down to their kids. You know, that's going to open their minds, uh, to those conversations. We do need to be better as a society of having open conversations about sexuality, but do so in a relational framework where we talk about the importance of sexuality with, within marriages and families. Talk. Um, it's interesting when I asked you the question about how to talk about pornography with your kids, you didn't, you went much broader than that, but I think that was the answer is it's under this umbrella of sexuality and just, I think that's a big, the right umbrella, or maybe you've got a bigger one where you're just having these conversations. Um, and that would make talking to your kids about porn much more natural because it's underneath this broad discussion you're already having and you can teach about porn use and, and talk about, about what our family rules are, what my expectations, if we're in a faith community, what their faith expectations are, which probably if you're LDS would match the LDS expectations. And then you can talk about, this is how I'll respond if you open up about porn use um, to me. And I, and, and maybe even say, I'd like you to open up to me as a parent about porn use. And this is how I respond. And any thoughts about that, that space? Cause a lot of parents are trying to figure out, you know, how to, I mean, I'm thinking of teenage boys, but I probably should be broader than that. You know, so many of parents my age, when we had teenage boys, we were going out to dinner talking, you know, do we talk to our kids about porn use? How do we keep them away from porn? Blah, 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 blah. And it was, it it was something we talked a lot about without really knowing how to talk about it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the data shows that it's usually not teenagers being exposed at first. It's usually children. Um, you know, it's usually like a lot of parents will assume it's in the teenage years, but they're usually being exposed much sooner than that. Um, and so I'd say have the conversations much sooner than that. Um, you know, and like I said, it starts off with talking about sexuality more broadly, just from basics, like naming your body parts. Who's allowed to touch your, your, your private parts. You know, you talk about it, be like, Oh, okay. If I'm with the doctor and I'm with you, they are like who, you know, you start conversations like that. And really at the beginning, you start those conversations to help them not be violated by someone else and to know who, who's allowed to touch them. And then you go on to more complex topics. Like, Oh, you begin feeling like you know, good if something touches you and so on. Um, and you talk about the like healthy parts of sexuality. And then you talk about how, how a baby's made things like that. Um, and then as far as addressing pornography directly, you know, with my kids, we do something and it can be done in a variety of ways, but with my kids, you know, we describe to them, like, what is pornography? And we describe like, you know, it's nudity, people trying to make each other feel good, arouse things like that. 
And with my kids, it's actually become kind of like a fun game because we've been doing it from such a young age. And I tell my kids and and any parent that's trying to avoid the instance of their child being exposed to pornography, that's fine. But if you are going into the mindset that you can avoid that experience from happening, you're going to be sorely disappointed because they will be exposed to pornography at some point. And so it's really about making sure that when they are exposed, they come talk to you, they come show you, that they tell you how that made them feel, how it affected them and what they're going to do from there. And so my kids now, it's really funny, everyone from like a four-year-old, five-year-old to my 10-year-old, they're they're so funny. They run around this big group and it's like a it's like a game for them like <laughs> mom we just found porn and then they'll show me and I'll be like no that's the cover of the Victoria's Secret magazine you know that's not pornography that's a lingerie magazine I'll explain it to them they'll be like oh okay and then they move on but my kids get very excited to show me things that they found that they think might be pornography because I don't I don't pull up a porn site for them and say hey this is pornography I describe it to them I describe the function of pornography and so it's become like this great game for them now they every time bring me anything that might resemble what I've described and then it gives me the opportunity to be like no, that's actually, that's actually a statue. That's like Roman art. This is the function of what this is. That's not exactly pornography. And I get to re-explain to them every time what pornography is. But the fun part is that they're coming to me and they're excited to talk about it. And they're excited to ask me questions about all of these things. Like if they watch, like, you know, if I'm watching a movie and they walk in and there's like a scene, you know, of people kissing or something. And I'd be like, I felt good while I was watching. I'm like, okay, that's normal. And we'll talk about that. And so it's kind of become this uh, fun situation. And then, like I said, they go back and they're playing with their dolls. They go back and they're drawing pictures for me and writing cute journal entries. Like they don't become this big, bad thing that you might have in your mind once they're exposed to this stuff, they more just trust you and they more are just willing to have those conversations and they're developing, they're sexually developing and they begin sexually developing from the day they're born. You know, that's part of human development, just like cognitive development or physical development or intellectual development or any other sphere. Um, And so it can become, and I think a parent needs to become comfortable, get acquainted with some of this stuff so that you are not a fish out of water when they bring it up, you know, start learning about it yourself. You know, it's, it's really important for adults to start learning more about their sexuality. And as they do, they'll get more comfortable talking to their kids too. Uh, that is a great segment. Um, I think you've answered this, but because you talk about where your kids, you know, after you had these discussions, they just go back to be normal kids, but some parents might say, well, Julie, talking about all this stuff is just going to cause curiosity. It's going to lead to porn use. So the best strategy is I'm not going to talk about this. We're just not going to talk about this as parents, as a family. I'm not going to get my kids curious about any of this stuff. And that's the best way to just, and I'm going to, you know, teach whatever, you know, and I'm getting a little extreme to make a point because I know you're going to help you know, why that may not be the best strategy. Go Because that was probably my strategy, to be honest, as a parent for a while. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. It's a really common way of thinking about this. So you don't have to feel bad if as a parent, you're trying to avoid the conversation to avoid curiosity about it. Um, it's just not accurate, right? So all of the research has shown too, like without sex education, you have higher rates of teen pregnancy, higher rates of STIs, um, higher rates of not using condoms, things like that. Right. And it, it, it's the same, um, with, with pornography or anything else, you're going to see higher rates of pornography use or, or more frequent pornography use. If you're not talking about it, uh, the curiosity is always going to be there. Your kids are sexually interested throughout the lifespan. It is if you really look at it, and especially if you're coming from like an LDS standpoint, right? You look at it like the whole purpose of life is to like get married and have a family, right? That whole concept surrounds around sexuality. None of that happens without sexuality. Sexuality is like the core of our interests. We're thinking about it from the day we're born. We're always developing sexually. And so if you think that by avoiding the topic, you're going to keep someone from being interested 
that's not going to work. They're always going to be interested. Um, it's just a matter of where they're going to get their information and if the information is going to be reliable or not. And in the absence of information, um, you see issues arise, right? Like I said, not just, not just for, not just for, um, you know, typical neurotypical folks, um, but, but all folks from all different walks of life, all different demographics, we see greater issues in LGBT youth that are not given LGBT inclusive information um, when they're young. We see greater issues for girls that are not given uh, female-centered uh, sexuality information and boys and um, people with autism, depression, and so on. And so, um, you know, we have issues too with like single people, especially with aging and development that are not given good information about sexuality, um, even for senior couples and how sexuality changes. Like we all throughout the lifespan are sexually curious and need medically accurate information um, that will help us with sexual wholeness, with our sexuality, with our partnerships. It's it's crucial. So we're always curious. Talking about it only helps. Share more. We've got, you know, 20 more minutes. Um, I think you could go for a couple hours. I think a lot of our listeners probably wish you'd go for a couple hours. Um, and listeners, we're going to connect um, link in the show notes to this steadfastinstitute.org and Julie's Instagram page because those have come up. We want to make sure you get connected to those for more information. But yeah, just go wherever you want to go next. Okay. So where do I want to go next? Well, I, I always, when I like to, when I have time, I always like to highlight some really good researchers that are out there right now and some of the stuff they're doing. Um, and so if you're interested in some of this pornography pieces, as it relates to couples, uh, couples, pornography use, um, marriages, millennial marriages, there's a researcher out there named Brian Willoughby. He does some really excellent work and has some good books out there. Um, if you're interested in more of like the sexual wholeness, the purpose of sexuality, um, what it does for marriages and families um, throughout the lifespan and human development. Uh, some of my favorite there are Dean Busby and Shalom Leavitt. Um, they do a lot of really good work out there. Uh, another researcher that that works in 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 both of these spaces is Nathan Lenhart. Um, he's really really good. Um, Jason Carroll does a lot of work there too. Um, these folks here, you know, it's interesting because what a lot of people don't know, and I don't advertise this heavily, but what a lot of people don't know is some of the best sexuality research is coming out of BYU by some of these people that I've listed. Um, they're some of the brightest, smartest, and inclusive folks in the space. Um, and because they carry the BYU title, they don't get as much attention as they should because people make a set of assumptions about what they may or may not think um, or their attitudes, what they might not be. But these folks, their methods are excellent. Um, they're undisputed and they are doing uh, better in this space than a lot of other folks. Um, and so I would say really check out their research and what they're saying. They've written different books and articles out there. Um, you just, you know, and we're going to be making some of our marriage courses that will be coming here in the future for couples, uh, for engaged folks, um, for senior couples. A lot of those courses that we will be developing in the coming years are going to be based off of a lot of the research coming from some of these good folks. And we'll link to a lot of those. I'll try to link to all of those in the show notes. Um, just list their names and maybe a website or just if you want to learn more about them and what they've written. If you want to go deeper, we'll link to those in the show notes. And Julie will help me get the right names down. Yeah, sure. Keep sharing. Oh, my goodness. I don't know if I have enough time to share too much more. We could go in a lot of different directions. Well, talk um, a couple questions see. for you then. We talked about this before we went live because you're... I'm thoughtful about LGBTQ folks, queer folks. Um, and I realize, L, you know, talk about porn use in that community. And if there's any research, my intuitive would be there's higher um, use of porn, higher porn use, um, because there's just less channels for information. So people may inadvertently or advertently turn to porn use if you're not straight for information. And there may be a a higher use, but I don't have any research. And so you could share whatever you want with that. And also have said in the past, you know, porn use to me is usually an insight into someone's sexual orientation versus something 
that changes it. So I don't know if you want to share any thoughts on either of those topics. Yeah. So we briefly chatted about that. And I always want to tread lightly here because the research is not as dense in this specific population as I wish it was right now. And that's a direction I'm hoping to go into. And so when I talk about this, I'll talk about what I know from the research. Um, Also with a generous understanding that we're still learning a lot and my hopes of what we will learn. Um, And so for my last study on women's porn use, which included only women, um, the LGBT women in the study viewed more hardcore pornography. Um, They viewed more pornography that might be viewed as problematic more generally. Um, And I have an underlying hypothesis as to what that is. And that's a study that I'm branching into right now. Um, But it it really goes in line with uh, the research on sex education. Um, The underlying hypothesis for that is that these folks are typically not given LGBT inclusive sex education. And this is a really interesting place right now because we have a lot of information on social media now that's coming from an activism side. And so we're pushing a lot of LGBT ideas, which are not bad to do. This is great. This is great that we are normalizing a lot of these conversations, but a lot of them are not rooted in any science or data. Um, And what LGBT folks need is medically accurate information at a young age. And because we don't know if someone's LGBT when they're say age two, three, four, five, because we're all forming identities throughout childhood, everyone needs to be exposed to LGBT inclusive sex education. And that's not to tell people that they should be this or that, but it's to open the door and say, Hey, this is what the experience is different for LGBT folks. And we need to do this for disabilities too. We need to talk about people with depression, people with bipolar, the need to have higher dopamine um, stimuli and how that might affect their sexuality, people with autism, how they work on a different time clock, how they work with different patterns. Um, And we don't have a neurodiverse inclusive sex education either, as, as well as not having LGBT inclusive sex education. We don't have female inclusive sex education. We see a higher rate of even heterosexual women viewing lesbian pornography. And the reason we believe for that is because it's focusing on female pleasure, where a lot of other types of pornography are focusing on the male version of pleasure. And so we need more sex education that focuses on what pleasure looks like for women. How does a woman become aroused in climax and so on? Um, And we need to do this for all sorts of populations, you know, and we're going to need to take a male-centered lens too, because we've had this very typical medical model of male pleasure, um, but we haven't really gone into depth about what that really looks like for men. What men know about pleasure is basically what's been fed through them through the porn industry and everything else. And so we really need to take a look at unique populations, teach more broadly during the lifespan so that people understand the differences in sexuality, how we operate differently depending on our sexuality, so that people in those different categories do not become confused or hurt or further depressed because they're not receiving that because sex Sexuality is such a core component of who we are and how we drive, right? Like sexuality is everything to us. Our sexual identity, our gender identity, our orientation, our, um, like I said, our gender identity, like these pieces are fundamental to who we are as humans. And we have to be able to understand the sexual pieces of that, especially as it relates to pleasure. It is what drives us as humans. Um, And we hope that all sex education in this respect will also include a relational model. I think the problem we have right now, especially in schools, is that we're beginning to see more inclusive sex education in different areas, not nearly where it needs to be. Um, But we also take out that really important relational piece. And, you know, and the Harvard School of Public Health is really bringing some attention to uh, this social pandemic that's going on, the social isolation, we're seeing now that we're taking out the importance of relational health. Relational health is a big part of all of this. We can't teach sexuality without providing this framework for how to have a healthy sexual attachment, which usually happens with another partner, right? And so what we're hoping is to teach people how to go from their nest in consideration of atypical family circumstances, how to cultivate healthy sexuality throughout the lifespan so that they can enter into another healthy attachment to 
carry out the rest of their life in. And I think that's where most people thrive. And um, that's why sexuality is so important. And um, it needs to be inclusive to all these different different um, considerations as well as different cultural pieces that I haven't talked about yet. Um, but that's, like I said, that's what we do at the Steadfast Institute. We are very much looking at these very specific situations and how sexuality instruction and coaching looks different for them. Um, for LDS parents that want to teach about, you know, LG. BTQ. I can't say just some of the words. I'm so used to saying all, all the letters together. And you've been talking more about LB, LGT, or sorry, LBT. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, sorry, listeners. Um, talk to you know some parents would in, would not want to talk about this at all with their kids. Back to I don't want to introduce this concept to their minds. I kind of would prefer to have straight kids. That's certainly easier for them in society and the church. And I you know I recognize if I've got a a queer kid that is something that makes their life harder. And, um, and so I don't want to confuse them. So I'm not going to introduce this topic at all. Um, and I don't, so talk to LDS parents. I assume you'll kind of give a principles based, it's back to maybe you want to be the trusted expert for kids, but, um, what age or what principles can LDS parents use to introduce, um, who somebody is that's LGBTQ? Yeah, this is tricky because this will keep <laughs> on the podcast for like five more hours, but I'll try my best to summarize. Um, so we are working on courses for this for parents as well. Um, in the meantime, anyone's feel free to message me for individual circumstances. I'd be happy to advise. Um, but for the most part, I understand the fear. I really do. And there's actually a lot of good scientists out there that are concerned about this piece as well. They see the social movements that are not in alignment with actual research and they worry about what it's doing to society. And when I say this, I'm actually not talking about conservative researchers. I'm talking about some pretty like liberal ones that identify as LGBT that have been doing trans research for a long time. They're really concerned that the social media movement is not accurately portraying what's actually happening. Um, and so Parents are understandably concerned. Um, but this is what I would say from the pornography research side. What I'm seeing on the pornography research side and from what I know about individual sexuality and sexual identity is you're going to unintentionally harm your children if you are not making clear that diversity in gender and sexual orientation exists. You're not only at this point hurting your potentially gay or LGBT child, you're also hurting your heterosexual child because these children are going to be exposed to pornography at some point. You don't know what your child has. You don't know if your child's bipolar. You don't know if your child has OCD. You don't know if your child's LGBT. You don't even know if they're heterosexual. You make a set of assumptions based off of who you are and what you think they are. But we don't really discover those pieces of what our child are for quite a while. And if they're not receiving early exposure to what actually exists, they become confused. Your heterosexual child will now at some point be exposed to pornography, a pornography world that has a lot of LGBT pornography to which they're going to be getting aroused to that they might even get confused whether they're heterosexual or not. You're having your LGBT child that you might not know is LGBT, not getting information that's pertinent to their actual identity that they experience very differently than their heterosexual peers. Now, probably going to be looking at things like pornography from a much younger age, involved in much more hardcore, maybe illegal types of pornography from a younger age and developing more problematic issues. But the problem here is that your LGBT child that you don't know is LGBT yet is now getting involved in a space where the people putting out this porn don't care about their well-being. They don't care about their orientation. They just care about selling a product, right? They just care about selling their pornography. But now your child knows that there's only one way that they can even get a glimpse into who they are. 
and they're going to go to that source and they're going to have issues that we're still trying to figure out as researchers about how this younger exposure and more hardcore exposure is going to impact these vulnerable LGBT youth. And so as an LDS parent, you might want to teach your children to go one way or another, but the best way to give agency to your child is to give them the best information possible at the youngest age possible. And so you're really just unintentionally going to harm your child, whether they're heterosexual or LGBT or having any other mental health condition by not talking about this sooner. And the more information you can give them, the greater agency you actually give them to be able to make choices if they want to stay on this covenant path or whatever else it is. Right. And you can teach them that you can teach them that they can have this and go that way. But ultimately more damage is done by not giving the best information that can actually empower an individual to have true choice. And so I know that's a, that's a mouthful and it's hard to know where to start. Because where do I even start? I don't even know the difference, right? And so I'd say, uh, you know, I wish I had all these courses ready to just give everyone out. That's my dream to be able to like serve everyone at the same time. So I could just give them everything they're looking for. And we are working on that. Um, but in the meantime, feel free to send me a message. I try to keep highlights on my Instagram for free so that people can have that information while we're in development. Um, and I have a lot of info there. And then the more questions I get, the more I have to add to those highlights. So feel free to send me messages and we can start those conversations. Um, tell our listeners what your Instagram page is. Sure. So the one where I leave all of the free info and updates is uh, Dr. Framani McBride. So that's D-R-F-R-A-U-M-E-N-I-M-C-B-R-I-D-E. And then the actual uh, company page is at the Steadfast Institute. And then that one, we do less highlights and free info and more just put out content for uh, the different programs that are coming out. Um, but you're welcome to to message either one of those. Um, but I keep all of the free resource on the Dr. Framini McBride one. Um, well, any other thoughts you'd like to share in the last five minutes? Any other thoughts? Um, Yes, I would say we're living in a little bit of a crazy world right now. <laughs> Things are a little bit up in chaos. Um, people are all over the place. Um, and uh, porn is a big source of confusion. Uh, the way we're impacted by media, social media, pornography has greater impacts on us than any of us really realize. And I would say to really mindfully reflect on how things actually impact you and um, make efforts to be less susceptible to the messages you're being fed um, and be more proactive about what you choose to let into your life, um, whether it's on social media or with pornography um, or otherwise. And if you can't undo it yourself with the pornography piece, please get professional help. It will help you in so many very ways. Um, but ultimately remember that you are resilient. You are a person. You do have agency. Your agency is just left to you to make small choices to slowly move in different directions, but you don't always have control over exactly where you go, but you do have control over small choices that can help you get in the right direction. I love that. I love everything you've shared. It's, I hope your voice gets heard far and wide as well as the fellow researchers you referenced. I love your approach. I love the fact-based um, take us in the research and trying to then turn that into actual clinical work to help people. I love, you know, I, my wife would come home after my YSA service. And that's been a while ago. i sorry, I keep referencing that listeners, but it was so transforming for me. And she says, what do you think you're doing in the bishop's office? So, I, you know, and I said, I think mostly what I'm doing is removing shame. And connecting people with the love of God, and and when you so when you talk about deconstructing shame, it's interesting that that's sort of how I framed up a lot of the work I did was just helping people know that um, how they felt about them was not how their heavenly parents felt about them. And Brene Brown, which you would know, says shame is bad versus I did something bad. And what a powerful short sentence. Um, our doctrine is we are not bad. We are children of heavenly parents who love us and. Nothing we can do, in my belief, takes them out. Take, can take us outside of the circle of their love. Um, it's not conditional. Blessings are conditional. Go to the temple is conditional on you know having a temple recommend, but having a relationship with 
God and feeling God's love, um, to me, that's not something that's earned. It's just there. And shame, Satan only wins listeners. I think Satan's first way to win is sin, but that's part of mortality. I think the real test is how we respond um, to our slip-ups, however we define those. And that's when Satan can disconnect us from loving ourselves, love of God, um, feeling like, you know, we're the only person with this problem. And he just isolates us into this whirlpool of, of shame and self-loathing. And to me, the gospel is about looking forward with hope. Um, the things that Julie's doing versus looking backward and, and shame and self-loathing. And often it's clinical work that gets, you know, when you talk about the tooth that I had a root canal recently, so it really resonates, my wife did too, that resonates with me. I couldn't like solve that through, except going to um, my dentist who's really gifted and got my root canal fixed. And so I love the way you frame that up. It doesn't take the sin part of that away, listeners. No one's dismissing the sin here, but we're talking about tools, um, the pathway to healing. And I think there's a spiritual component, obviously, but there's a, just like with any other things you're talking about, the mental health issues, we turn to professionals in that area that have clinical expertise and programs that can help us solve things. And so any thoughts that just, I want to, usually when I say a last thought, that generates a thought or two from my guests. So you're up, you're back up, Julie. Okay, good. Yeah. I, I, like I told you before, I don't usually delve into a lot of the spiritual. I leave that up to clergy. Um, but I do like to point out one example that we do use with some of the moral incongruence instructing. Um, like you said, with the sin, right? If you do look back at like the old Bible uh, verses that talk about David and how he lusted after Bathsheba, right? There's a really clear distinction that he wanted it in his heart. And that was the sin right? It wasn't because the thought popped into his mind or that he had the idea, right? And so like, that's like, and like I said, I don't speak as a clergy member. I leave that up to, to the priesthood and um, those that advise on this, but like the sin is that you want it that way. But if you're trying to stop, you might get confused and think you want it, but if you're trying to stop, you don't really actually want it. Right. And so it's not necessarily the same thing as wanting it and being entrenched in it. And so I would say, take that, let that like shame leave you because you're actually trying. Right. Um, and um, for clergy members to see the difference between that, like, does this person actually, if they're coming in your office feeling bad about it, they probably want to stop you know? And so that's very different from someone that doesn't care to stop. Um, and I also wanted to point out that when Richard sent me what he had written about porn based off of his experience with being a bishop, I now, whenever I have bishops or stake presidents reach out to me with info specifically tailored to their roles, I say, this is above my pay grade, but I know <laughs> a guy that was a bishop and he has this whole, and I read through it and I was really impressed. It was like the most comprehensive, like spiritual version of what we kind of try to say. And so I send that out all the time. So if there are any clergy folks listening right now, I would say reach out to Richard Osler and ask him for a copy of that because I don't provide like the spiritual stuff, but he can. So I would say go to him. You're very kind, Julie. And that's um, chapter four, ending pornography use of my book, Listen, Learn, and Love, Improving Latter-day Saint Culture. And chapter five, hope-filled repentance is very similar. And you can even go to um, papaosler.com, my landing page. And there's a little link where you can read those chapters for free, um, download them, share them. So I wanted to scale my content so it's available free if needed. So that's, um, you're very kind. And coming from a researcher, that's probably one of the highest compliments um, I've ever been given. So thank you. Um, so listeners, look for the show notes. We've mentioned a lot of things in the show notes. Act on the impressions you felt. This is a unique podcast. Um, it gives me hope for the future of all the bright, thoughtful people that are stepping in this space. Um, I've always felt like pornography use is peaking. Um, you're, I didn't, I mean, I think it's peaking because it's 24 seven access, but I, I think that's what caused it to spike. But I think the reason it's peaking is because really thoughtful people are entering the space, um, with research-based programs to help solve this, like the ACT program. And also you uh, listeners that are growing up dealing with 
24-7. You're the parents and the local leaders of today and tomorrow that will just have to have lived this world yourself, something I didn't do in my 60s. Um, and you are the ones that are going to help. Um, so I've always felt this problem potentially is peaking um, because of the things I've mentioned and people like Julie. So anyway, um, I'm going to try to say your last name correctly, your full name, Dr. Julie Framini McBride. Is that close enough? That's great. That's great. Um, and it is a big deal. You have a PhD and that's a whole nother story. She told me a little bit about that and um, mega respect for getting a PhD. I, I do ask this question. If I'd met you as a teenager um, and said, Julie, are you going to get a PhD one day? Is this part of something you always felt you were going to do? Or is this something? Um, it's good sometimes for our listeners to hear these stories. Do you want to share any of that? No, I did not. No, I definitely didn't know I was going to do porn research. That's for sure. Um, but uh, no, I did not have any. I, I think my goddad, I was raised Catholic. I think he definitely was hoping that he would usher me into the cancer research field and was always trying to get me exposed to the sciences. But in my mind, I watched a lot of Law and Order. I thought that would have been kind of cool. You know, like I had a very like commercial view of what would be cool, maybe running for president, something like that. I, I grew up in the D.C. area, so that cool. was always on my mind. You know, we're always being exposed to politics there. But no, no way. No way would I have thought I would get a Ph.D. It was um, I, I would say like I was kind of had my own spiritual journey to get here. I wouldn't recommend it for the general audience. It is quite brutal. And I don't say that like some are more fit to get it than others. I'm just saying, I don't think it's a necessary degree for everyone. I think it's very necessary for what I do. But for my own kids, I'm not like, hey, get a PhD, guys. I'm like, oh man, avoid it if you can. But if you need it, I'll help you. So I love that. And I think it's part of writing our own story. You wrote your own story. Um, and I think that's something I love what we say in our faith is write your own story. Um, listen to other stories. But in the day, you got to write your own story. So I think it's good to hear stories of people that are PhDs and people are doing this or that to potentially open your mind to areas. But it may be a sister area like um, you were exposed to cancer research, I think you were saying. And so that may have sort of got you in this whole general research world. And and so I think as you know, as parents, we open doors and we give ideas, but I think it's best if people write their own story and really own their own story. And you have a beautiful personal story in the middle of the work you're doing for people. So um, I can never sign off podcasts very well. I'd listen to other podcasts and they sign off so crisply and I just kind of meander on, but we will sign off. So Julie Framini McBride, Dr. Julie Framini McBride, thank you for being on the podcast. And Oh, the people that are working with you in this space. So this is, and Richard Oss are signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Mm -hmm.